0: Hello and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Andrew Gluck, General Partner at Irreverent VC. Irreverent is a rolling fund that focuses on investing in next-gen commerce, D2C, and ad tech. Some of Andrew's investments include House, Caraway, Cadence, Italic, Poppy, and Simple. Previously, Andrew founded and was the CEO of a marketing agency called Agency Within, which generated over $5 billion for brands looking for maximized profitability. In this episode, we discuss the intersection of growth marketing and investing, how Andrew makes investment decisions based on his background on growth, as well as how to choose a marketing agency if you are a young brand. Without further ado, here's Andrew. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm doing well. I want to start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to marketing, especially like online digital marketing?
1: Yeah, sure. So I went to school at Brandeis and studied economics as an undergrad. Really have always loved math my whole life and had been good at math and loved it. And then also loved the interplay with economics and how people behave, consumer psychology. And growth marketing was like a beautiful mix of the two. It felt like here I get to leverage my math, consumer psychology elements, convincing people to do things, being persuasive, being able to run tests and learn and grow over time. I also love, as someone who's driven to, to be better um, over time, even competing against myself and form, you know, month over month growth and things like that. It, it growth marketing is a place where you get a dashboard, you can get a score, you know, every single day, every single week, every single month in terms of how you're doing and how you're performing. And that really feeds into my competitiveness.
0: No, that's great. That's great. And I, yeah, I totally understand. I mean, obviously, growth marketing is very, very competitive and and you're able to analyze how, almost with every second, how the promotion is actually doing, which is, of course, unlike other marketing channels. What were some of the changes since you've now done growth marketing for, what, like 10 years? Is that right?
1: I did a little bit in college, but yeah, officially in like February 2020, 11 I've been doing growth marketing for for 10 and a half years now almost and it's 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 been great. I mean the industry has grown tremendously obviously over the past 10 years. The information, the community around it has, has grown, uh, but I think the biggest thing is just the scale and opportunity. Uh, when I was first running growth marketing for a B2B company in Brooklyn, they sold signs, so street signs, stop signs, things like that to the business owners, apartment building owners. It was Google Ads, Bing Ads, had a little bit of volume Facebook was barely off the ground there in terms of a, a place to advertise. Um, Snapchat was um, created yet. Um, Pinterest was not a place people were advertising. You know, you had direct mail. Direct mail has been been around for forever, but you didn't have programmatic direct mail in the same way. You didn't have OTT over the top uh, TV advertising. Podcasts weren't very uh, abundant or or really exist in the same way that as they do now. So. Just the scale and opportunity, and and all the new channels that have grown has been tremendous to see.
0: When you're consulting with brands, I mean, you just named a bunch of them. But what are some like the decisions that go through your mind, or how you think about growth, and what the actual appropriate channel mix should be?
1: Yeah, this is a great question and one of the toughest ones. And there's been a lot of ink spilled and and fights fought over this. But you know, you start with what is the product? Do we is this a, a product where there's A lot of demand for it, and it's a pull product, right? People are going and searching on Google and Google Shopping, and you're going to be able to to garner a lot of demand from there, right? Uh, Pet food, right? People need pet food; they go online, they go and search it, they buy it. Or is this a push product? A product like, conversely, uh, not a brand I worked with, but a brand that I enjoy, uh, Daily Harvest, right? Do people search for you know healthy smoothies? They do now. You know, at the beginning, they had to educate people about this. And what they were doing, and, and how they were building this, and what that you know would look like for the consumer, and so they were advertising through Facebook, right? And those are for almost all consumer companies are going to be your two biggest channels, um, regardless of you know kind of what you're in. You know, over time, you can grow into you know if you're in the B two B space into LinkedIn, Pinterest. If you're especially in the wedding space or home decor or selling you know things related to home, um, whether it's you know loans or home renovation services, architectural services, things like that. Um, so it's about finding your audience and then going after them. But it's really challenging. The other thing that becomes really challenging is yeah, when you're on one, two, three channels, okay, you can start to see as you spend more on one, how it impacts the other. When you start to be on 10, 12 different channels, you run into a problem where I hit Mike on direct mail piece you know, on a Wednesday. He comes through brand search on Friday we hit him with a Facebook retargeting ad on Tuesday. He then converts through on the next Wednesday. Like, how are we giving up that credit? And this multi-touch attribution—it's funny. It was solved-ish in 2011. Convertro, which was bought by AOL, almost had this thing, whole thing solved. And then Facebook started, and the ability to track through Facebook and view through conversions and everything else really kind of put the kibosh on that. But now it's just—it's just so complicated.
0: Because in the scenario. That you laid out of you know maybe you maybe you got a piece uh, direct mail maybe you also then were hit on Facebook with an advertisement. It's really hard to really understand. Okay, what what actually what's the psychology of the consumer? What actually got the consumer over the line? When you're advising like startups and you know early companies, what are some of the things that even as a consultant or as an investor, what are kind of some of the things you're telling these founders about attribution?
1: Yeah, I mean at the earliest stages or even at the medium stages like you really got to realize you're never going to get 100% of the way there and don't let good be the enemy of or you know, perfect be the enemy of done right so you got to get 80% of the way there you have to understand that we're not going to be able to track everything down to the t every single touch point along the way and then if you can then you could build a regression model against it but you're not going to at the earliest stages and it doesn't make sense to in terms of the juice isn't worth the squeeze if you're spending 100 50, 250, even you know a million dollars a month, looking at attribution as a whole, meaning looking at each of the channels individually, understanding what channels are similar. So Google non-brand search is equivalent to Facebook prospecting. Facebook retargeting is similar to Google retargeting. Um, you know Podcast is even more upper funnel and needs you know, to be given more credit because it's harder to tie things back. kind of understanding each channel in its own and then how they relate to the other ones. And then one thing you do need to track is total business, right? Because you don't want a situation where you're like, let's just even just boil it down to two channels and keep it really simple. Where Mike comes to me and he's like, hey, Facebook is crushing it. And AdWords is crushing it. I'm like, yeah, but like total business isn't growing over time. Or like where you're not growing, you know, the whole pie. So you also need to relate that back to the total business and, and make sure that the total business is growing and not just the channels individually.
0: There's some great points. I mean, I also like what you say about, about podcasting as well. Like, also, we need to realize that it's also a lot tougher for the consumer, maybe to actually, there's a lot more friction for a consumer to listen to a podcast episode than have to go to the website. And even if they, they click a link in show notes, there's a lot more friction there, right? Than actually just being able to click on a Facebook ad.
1: In actuality, the, the truth is, you know, not just Mike, but all podcasters, yeah, you want to track with the code, you want to track with the link clicks. You got to realize and see. You know, when the episode drops, is there a you know is there a spike in traffic to the site? If you have a survey on your site, a How Heard survey, are you seeing an uptick in podcasts? Are you giving, if it's a consumer facing company or even a B two B company, some type of code or coupon that you can use to then track it back to the source? Again, doesn't need to be mic specifically, although it should be. But but yeah, you got to figure out the best ways to track each channel.
0: That's a great point. I mean, not only tracking. You know, obviously the conversion, which is obviously what ideal, but also simply if you actually saw an uptick, then maybe that's your top of funnel in a podcast, let's say, for example, where you actually did see people actually come to the website. And then maybe maybe that's like the beginning of their customer journey. What was it like eventually as well starting your own growth marketing agency? So
1: a co founder and I started the agency and- Tail end of 2014. We'd done some consulting before, both individually and together. We saw like a really big need in the market for the type of agency that we would have wanted to use on the brand side. When we were on the brand side with vitamin Shop, Quidzy, some of his roles, like we worked with agencies. We often took over accounts and saw like what our agencies were doing. We were fired a lot of agencies as we came on board into places, and saw that there was no agency that was really focused on. Data-driven performance, right? Using the data and being focused on performance. Those are the the most important thing. Is it working, right? And the relationship matters, and that can augment performance or can hinder performance. But um, at the end of the day, that's what you're getting paid for as an agency. So we really came in with that approach. We, when we built the agency, how we grew was, you know, word of mouth and referral and reputation. I mean, we knew some of these businesses better than some of the, you know, our point of contacts within the companies in terms of understanding how the business actually worked. That was another component, right? A lot of these agencies are started by people who have media backgrounds. And honestly, a lot of these people started with like the creative background and then layered on performance marketing, which is a very different skill set. So we had the business background as well to understand what our clients are trying to accomplish and then go and, and layer on that into a plan, a strategic plan on the paid performance side.
0: Just for advice for you know founders that are currently maybe looking for a to actually outsource and looking for a growth agency, what's kind of like that due diligence process that they should do?
1: Yeah, I think you should find you know an agency that's the right stage for you and the right sector for you, right? I think that's really important. So find other brands that are a step or two ahead of you in your sector, right? If you're in CPG and CPG, if you're in food FMB and FMB. And, and speak to those founders that you see having success and growing and, and go talk to them and get re- recommendations and referrals from them. And then, you know, it's great when they, you know, all these agencies uh, have these nice, you know, presentations, sales decks. Like, I like to see when agencies, um, you know, what I recommend is like, okay, when they were talking to you, did they ask about the business? Do they understand the unit economics? Do they understand, you know, the, the pain points and the, how to scale and what scaling, you know, Looks like, and you know, like that shows another level again of bringing not just you know media buying, but understanding. Hey, this is a you know a lot of times venture back business has these growth expectations, and it's it'll be great if you you know are an amazing media buyer, but it also is you know one plus one equals five, not not just two. If you could also bring that that business perspective, and if they're bringing that on the you know introductory call or in that in that process, that that bodes really well. And the other one is like, you know, figure out a way to to have them either audit the account or work with them on a smaller scope or, you know, a one, two, three month trial before getting locked into long-term contracts, right? Agencies work hard. Most of the work, a lot of the work is in the first, you know, few months. So be good to them, pay them, give them the opportunities. But if they're not working, like, you know, fine, move on to the next thing. And also I think like, Setting expectations up front is really important. Once you do decide who to work with, around you know what does success look like. The worst thing in the world is they come to you in week, two weeks, three weeks in, and they're like, "Hey, like things are going amazing." You're like, "Well, I don't think so, right?" You want to make sure you're on the same page from day one. Um, the final thing I'd say, like for me, is a big red flag are the agencies that are like, "Okay, cool, like we'll launch, and then we'll do an intro call week one, and then like we'll we'll." launch like one or two campaigns and then like we'll do some keyword research and then like we'll be live like fully ramp by like week four and it's like no like we should be live fully you know not maybe not fully ramped little tweaks and everything but like if you have accounts already live on you know adwords and facebook and the other platforms like they should be taking over the reins and ramping up within a week to 10 days like we turned on accounts in 24 48 hours in terms of Restructuring, rebuilding, and like yeah, that would be six hours, seven hours, and you know, days, and uh, a few people working on the account. But like that's what you want to see is people diving right in and, and and getting into the action right away.
0: Yeah, those are really good thoughts around. I particularly liked when you first said about how look at brands, and of course, you know. Founders no founders, CEOs no CEOs, and so look and maybe contact brands that may be a little bit far ahead of you. Instead of looking at, for example, like maybe like the all-star um, agencies, not not say the ones that are, that are a couple ahead of you all-star, but you don't need to look at like the ones that are doing like the Nike's of the world and what have you. You can look at agencies that maybe are doing or maybe one or two step above you um, that maybe on, on like the similar size in terms of maybe similar like ad budget size in terms of actually who you should hire. It makes a lot of sense. I I really appreciate about that. With all this being said about paid marketing though, when does it make sense for a company to actually start paid marketing?
1: You know, for direct consumer companies, once you have the product and the website's live, you're getting some traction and you have revenue and you have visitors to the site, one thing I think that's really important is you know the product needs to be good and the website needs to be good and the experience needs to be good for paid marketing to really have a chance to succeed. Like your organic and referral traffic and the traffic that comes through PR and press and your launch and your friends and family and your network, you gotta see you know at least two percent conversion rate usually on that traffic for it to then make sense to layer on paid because paid you're going after cold outreach, people have never heard of the brand, don't know anything about it, and you know once you start to dip below two percent on on organic and then paid is going to be usually a worse performer for you. Um, on that end and then the economics become really tough at the same time you probably need to scale so starting as soon as you can and learning as quickly as possible is great what i'd like to see more what i'd recommend more is like a lot of people want to do this big buzzy pr press launch everything like launch a site two three weeks before see what the organic traffic is like send it out to friends and family you know have them catch all the bugs make sure that the, the website is is ready for that kind of uh that kind of traffic and and make sure it's optimized at least somewhat to to make sure that your conversion rate is going to be successful.
0: is there a specific revenue number that you think should target in terms of uh, founders, because I kind of think about paid marketing like a faucet, like it kind of just turns on the faucet in terms of actually being able to get, you know, obviously sales and really, really rapid and scale your business. But you need that foundation, and foundation meaning that there needs to be some traction when it comes to organic sales. In my opinion, I mean, maybe you could start with paid ads up front, but at what point do you think? If you do have like a sales number, and I know this maybe depends on uh, per category, but if you had to say in terms of when it actually makes sense to actually turns to turn on paid ads, and actually if you were to see, hey, there actually is something here. This actually is a business. And so paid ads might actually make sense because you do have this organic following. Does that kind of make sense?
1: Yeah. What we're seeing more and more in the direct consumer space is People who are building with an entrenched audience, whether it's they have a following on you know, Instagram or TikTok, or they're partnering with celebrities, or celebrities are the ones building out the brands, or they're getting celebrity investors and endorsements right away. They have a newsletter, maybe they have a podcast, Mike, you should launch maybe a, a cool t-shirt company or something here. It does create a really great groundswell for what you're doing, right? Because again, at the end of the day, the things that are you know important for the company to scale and to succeed are are CAC and LTV and if you have a bunch of free they're not free because you've maybe taken time and, and years to build out an audience and and all of that but if you have quote unquote free or non paid people come into the business then that's great I was part of a great Twitter thread like a few weeks ago I don't remember exactly when someone was promote was talking about like you know again these these Brands that are being built on the backs of content, right? Glossier, Dr. Axe, um, a bunch of others were mentioned in the thread. I haven't yet seen like a brand that's been okay. Like, you no, know, we're launching the product and the content at the same time, and like the content will grow over time. It's usually like, hey, we have a successful content and we have a successful following. Let's go monetize it through a brand. So that would be interesting to see. It. An experiment that I'd be in following is kind of that kind of slow burn kind of work.
0: That's a really good point in terms of the, you haven't really seen the content piece and as well the brand launch without an acceleration of paid advertising from the get-go where you actually have those two coupled together. So that makes a lot of sense about why you should be even think about going paid maybe earlier than expected. Let's also switch gears and talk a little bit about you know you as an investor. I know you recently launched a rolling fund. Which congratulations! No, that's great. So so talk, talk to me a little bit about how that came together.
1: Yeah. So as you mentioned, so had had the agency, grew it over four years to be the largest independent digital marketing agency in the U.S. Had a successful exit from it. Um, my co-founder's still there, running it to this day. And then was trying to figure out what was next for me. Really loved the early stage space, especially enjoyed working with founders at the agency that were founding team, just founders. Really that zero to one, go to market, thinking through pricing, brand positioning, and you know building out you know a real business. So it was really exciting for me to you know start to dabble in that space through investing a little bit of advising. Did that for two and a half years, directly investing my own capital, invested in 23 companies directly and. With pretty good success in terms of no exits yet, but TVPI of of 3.7x, IRR north of 125%, uh, top percentile returns based on Angelus calculator, and based on that, I'm now taking the next step. I've always kind of known, or at least for the past you know year, year and a half, that that a fund would be the next step. I wasn't quite ready for a traditional fund, which takes a little bit longer to raise, has a little bit more restrictions and less flexibility in some ways um, and so the angelus rolling fund was a perfect on ramp for me into the this next stage in in going out and you know making that transition from angel investor to vc
0: that's awesome that's awesome i mean Congrats to you! We talked a bit about rolling funds as well on Ben Zeis's episode, and, and and some of the benefits of a rolling fund versus a, uh, a traditional venture capital fund. And we'll certainly put yours in the show notes so people can go. Um, um also talk about it too is your due diligence process. How do you think, especially coming from like a marketer background, how do you then evaluate companies at the early stages?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, it's funny because I'm actually, you know laying this out a little bit more as I, as I build out my fund deck and and have, have kind of clarified the things that have that I've done and realized that there really is you know kind of a, a pretty strong process here um, the, the first one for me is, is really founder market fit um, it's, it's really important for me um, at the earliest stages where there's generally no traction sometimes no revenue no product even to, to look at or evaluate is to understand you know does this founder really understand the market do they have an unfair advantage? Invested in Cowway very early. Um, ben, who's also a good friend, was an even earlier investor and advisor there. But you know, when you speak to Jordan, even though there was no product to look, feel, touch, you know, there are pictures and, and, and all of that, you could tell that he understood the kitchenware business better than anyone else who was building one of these early stage kitchenware competitors. Uh, and you know, that for me is a huge component of my of my process. it does this founder of these earned, learned insights. Do they have this built-in network of either you know people that they are automatically going to pre-sell into um, customers that are already lining up the door because they know that this you know this founder he or she is building you know an amazing amazing brand? I look at Steph Han at Cadence, these amazing travel pods, and you know she was her background as both the consumer for it, but also her background as a designer was perfect for what she was building, and so she already had you know, community around her of early testers and users who she knew was gonna was gonna buy the product, give her that early feedback as as she grew out that that business. And then you know, layering it on when it's a little bit later stage, you're you're also looking at, or even in the early stages, you're looking at, I do like to look at a financial forecast. I learn a lot from it, more in terms of how founders think and operate. It doesn't need to be a full-blown, you know, five year pro forma, but understanding okay like how does marketing scale? How do you think it scales? What does CAC look like? Are your retention numbers realistic? Are your, oh, well, we're going to, you know, our average customer is going to repeat five times. I'm like, yeah, just probably not. You know, remember your average customer is going to be way down by the one-time customer. Yes, the customer that stays might, that might be a median. It's not going to be the average. So looking at, at kind of the numbers and metrics and making sure that the founder has the strong base Building out a consumer brand on the product side, uh, I care about the product. I'm not the best evaluator of what's what's cool or what's hip or what's gonna you know be a hit on like a product side. So I tend to stay away from like fashion and apparel and even you know I invested in House, uh, the alcohol brand. I never tasted it. Um, you know, it's I I keep kosher. It's not kosher. I never tasted it. Me and one of the other investors joke about. Having to do a kosher batch for us um, all the time. You know, the product matters, but like, I don't think that that's where I have an edge and an advantage in terms of diligence. I have founders who, you know, are running marketing. I I, I go back to Poppy, uh, direct consumer wedding flower business, where I'm on a call with the founder, diligencing, and she's talking about numbers I'm like, what? These numbers are too good to be true. Like, pull up your Facebook. Let me see. And she pulls up her Facebook. They like, were diving in, you know. I look at Shopify, I look at AdWords and, and Facebook ads and, and due diligence on these things. It's what I know best. It's what I think I can kind of start to get an unfair advantage in terms of seeing listen, the business will change 100 times in the next 10 years. But understanding, like, are the components here, do they have the ingredients here for this to, to really massively scale?
0: What makes you excited about digital native brands, especially in this era where you don't have, and you know more than than me and, and probably than anyone, you don't have those Facebook and Google arbitrage opportunities that you did in like the late 2010s, I mean, those growth opportunities. Like, What makes you so bullish about these types of businesses?
1: What makes me really bullish is is just founders who are building this space with, again, this unfair advantage. A lot of times it's a distribution method, right? Um, so you do see these, Celebrity endorsed celebrity back brands that have something attached to it, where you are building something that might not be the necessarily most innovative, but maybe the distribution channel is really new or different. I get really excited by brands that also kind of it's like a two-threefold analysis that I do. Like, is this subscription where a subscription makes sense? Like a cheeky personalized night guards. You know, once you subscribe and get night guards, you're going to need them. You know, for the rest of your life, in theory. And they get gross after time, right? There's planned obsolescence almost in them. I also look at, you know, like Caraway where or, or Cadence where, you know, you have a nice high OV, good high gross margin dollars, and there's enough money. Even if this customer doesn't ever come back again, you make enough money on that first order to pay back CAC and, put, and pay back COGS and put dollars you know, to the bottom line. And then I also look at things like is the current way of buying the product broken? You know, house was an example with the three-tier distribution system. I invested in branch furniture. When you look at them, they're trying to disrupt the SMB and small and medium businesses office furniture space, where traditionally you have to go through a dealer. Um, there were markups. There was you know paper. There was three-week waiting periods. Even you know, get on the phone with people to really digitize that whole experience and. Work also directly with landlords um, on building out spaces and things like that. You know, those are the components and mixtures that I really look for in the space. Again, there's a ton going into beverages right now. It's not a space that I know very well um, outside of house, you know, that was my only investment there. So it's not a space that I know well. I think you're really reliant on retail distribution and on-premise, and it's just not like where I have an unfair advantage. But I think you're going to see a lot of winners there, too
0: what is one thing that you would change about venture capital
1: yeah one thing that needs to change is is disproportionate funding going to underestimated founders so female founders black founders immigrant founders people of color are just very very underfunded you know I was on a podcast the other day we we're talking about friends and family fund friends and family rounds like for a lot of people that doesn't exist it's not an option right there's a lot of for lack of a better word, code that, you know, in the VC space in terms of how found, you know, founders that get funded speak, pedigrees that they have, things like that. I still have a lot of work to do here. So the work is never done, but I'm proud of the fact that just about 50% of the deals that I've invested in have female, immigrant, LGBTQ or or people of color founders. So that's something that I don't have a mandate. I don't have a diversity quotient or anything like that. I just look for the best founders and and I think the best founders can be found anywhere.
0: What is one book that inspired you personally? One book that has inspired you professionally?
1: Sure. On the personal side, uh, it's Atomic Habits uh, by James Cleary. He talks about these small changes. One thing that I really love is like the identity piece that he talks about. Um, I, you know, have been a nail biter for a long time. He talks about you know you have to talk to yourself a little bit and start to be you know identify yourself as I'm not a nail biter. Right. And so with that, you know, I've been able to completely curb it, but, but do a lot better. Same thing on the health side, still a long way to go, but I've uh, since the beginning of the year, I've lost over 40 pounds so far and it's small changes lead to big changes and they compound and, and some of it's identity, you know, building for yourself uh a belief in how you behave and how you interact with the world is, is really important. On the professional side, I go back to Jason Calacanis's Angel. The book is is phenomenal. It's great. It really, you know, it really gets the juices pumping when you read it. In terms of how someone with you know not much of a of a tech background, I wouldn't call him completely an outsider. He was a VC scout, so but you know has been able to find great deal sources um invest in great companies, create great returns and, and and build a whole huge, you know, business of its own right around that has been, you know, it's pretty inspirational.
0: Yeah, those are two great ones. Um I actually recently read Atomic Habits. I agree. I really like the identity piece. For me I also liked the part where uh, James talks about how you have to owe somebody if you don't do something. I've actually been doing that for like little habits that I have with my wife, and that's been so just helpful in terms of keeping me on track because I know, okay, if I don't do this, I like owe her, like 20 bucks. That's awesome. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders?
1: Founders getting into this. like I think it's really important to make sure you you, you really love it um, and love what you're doing and what you're building and the space that you're in. Um, if you're successful, this is gonna be, you know, a ten year journey, and there's gonna be a lot of hard work along the way., um, you're gonna to have to sacrifice some things um, along the way. Just make sure that you're in love with the journey and whether that's the company building piece, whether it's the people along the way, the product and the space that you're building, the problem that you're solving, um make sure it's something that you're you know really, truly passionate about.
0: My final question to you is what's the best piece of advice that you've received? It's probably a little bit privileged,
1: but um, you know, to put the things that matter, you know, and that are the most important first. So things like, you know, your family and your friends and your health and, you know, the rest little things while important, they'll work themselves out. You'll find time for them. you will find ways to make them work, but you gotta make sure that you're, you're carving out the time, attention and energy to work on the things that are the most important in your life.
0: Andrew, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Appreciate it, Mike. Thank you for having me on. And, uh, everyone who's listening, make sure to sponsor Mike's uh, podcast and also make sure to buy his t-shirt line.
0: And everyone that's listening, make sure you subscribe to irreverent.vc. And we'll have everything in the show notes and we'll be sharing a lot more about that. Thank you. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Andrew on the show. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at irreverentvc. That's I-R-R-V-R-N-T-V-C. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at mikegelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.